You're listening to KVMRFM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Coming up on the KVMR Evening News, we have a special program featuring the Wild and Scenic Film Festival Media Lounge featuring filmmakers and other special guests. That's a special program coming up next. We get support from Mama Madrone's Eco Emporium on Broad Street, Nevada City, and online, offering earth-friendly, sustainably made clothing, local and fair trade artisan gifts, home decor, and more. Online store and information, mamamadrones.com. It's an honor to be part of the Wild and Scenic Film Fest again this year. And as I was mentioning off the air, it's an extraordinary gift that we're able to host one of the largest film festivals of its kind in our community. And for the first time, our community is literally worldwide and virtual. We're going to have folks joining us for the next hour and a half from all over the world. We have a special guests in addition to special filmmakers who are thrilled to be featuring their films and projects, some doing workshops, leading panels here in this very interactive, one of the most extraordinary festivals, I think, to participate in. So I want to welcome everybody. And we are also broadcasting this as well on KVMRFM Nevada City. And so we'll be uh, broadcasting that as well from 5 to 6 p.m. And it's an honor to be with our KVMR listeners as well. So, you know, celebrating 19 years of wild and scenic, and it's certainly a wild ride for all of us. And of course, this year, the festival will be broadcasting an entire week and from the comfort of your own home or your own devices. So the way the flow is going to work over the next hour and a half is we're going to be connecting with some extraordinary individuals, filmmakers, and other special guests. And we'll be doing these flash round interviews. So it's going to move quickly. You're going to get a sneak peek, a little taste of what's to come over the next week. And, uh, and perhaps it'll pique your interest to both watch their films and also connect with uh, the filmmakers directly. And hopefully, as the mission is of Wild and Scenic, to inspire activism. I know it has been wild times these days, and so we're all doing our best to stay in the flow. So as this is our first time to do the Media Lounge virtually, I appreciate everyone's patience. And I think one of our, uh, at least for me, in navigating our, our, uh, our current times is doing it with grace and ease. Our first guest, we have Robin Crane, and the film is called Barriers to Bridges. Hey, Robin, welcome. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. Good to be with you. Are you joining us? Are you? Do you live down in Alabama? No, I've actually never been to Alabama. You have um, been to Alabama. I through a, a fellowship called Southern Exposure, but I live in Oakland, California. Oh, you do? Okay, so you're not too far away from us. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, and have you participated in Wild and Scenic before? Only as a viewer. Okay, well, congratulations on having the film selected this year. Tell us a little bit about Barriers to Bridges, I, especially as it relates to engaging um, BIPOC yeah, so Barriers to Bridges covers four cases of environmental organizations trying to do community science programs, so engaging um, people and protecting waters and airways, um, but in a more um, just way, particularly when we like, look at the histories of environmental racism in the movement. So it's sort of a, a complicated story of reckoning that parallels the reckoning happening politically and systemically right now. And I think it goes along well with something that um, I think a lot of us have seen in the environmental movement of trying to look beyond inclusion, right? And look at, looking towards like 
following the leadership of those most impacted who know the, the best solutions to some of these wicked problems. Right, and, and Robin, who are some of the folks that you're featuring in this that are directly being impacted in the film, uh, Barriers to Bridges? Yeah, so the four sort of vignettes, um, one of them looks at GAS, which is a program that's doing um, data collection run by and for a community in Northern Birmingham that's predominantly black and really impacted by like environmental justice situation that has like a really high density of air pollution. So empowering people there to collect and own their own data and then be able to take action to protect their ability to breathe um, based on their own like home air monitoring systems. Um, so that was really inspiring to see that like active empowerment. And then another one is looking at Alabama Water Watch, which is empowering people, especially in Latinx communities to monitor waterways. Um, another one is looking at um, Cleo, who is one uh, is a sort of a personal portrait vignette that looks at the first soil scientist, the first black soil scientist in the USDA, and wow. he's sort of talking about his um, wetland education programs and and how his experience was being in a predominantly white world. Um, yeah, and the Alabama Audubon is the fourth one that partners with the Joe Family Farm, who are these like amazing um, figures in the black birding community who are just getting a bunch of people out to like spread the love of birds um, where there's been access denied in the black community. So, Robin, what is it that inspired you to create this film in the first place? Yeah, me personally, I mean, I am a white person, not from the South. So it's definitely interesting being an outsider and then obviously not there. There's another level of distance only talking to people through phone and Zoom and things like that. And it was a bit of a discernment, right? Of like, am I the one to make this film? And the topic that initially had been proposed through the Southern Exposure Fellowship was community science. So I kind of took that that was handed to me and it was at the time of the uprisings. And I was like, what is the conversation that I hope this film seeds? And it was around this, this question of reckoning with histories of racism and going beyond inclusion. So it felt like, yeah, almost like there was no other option. I was like, okay, I have to do as I much as I can it. to start this conversation from my position and not speak for anyone, but try to just uplift the voices of people doing the work. How has this film helped shape the way that you're going to tell stories now? How do you think that's going to look differently for you now, if, if, if at all, in your upcoming yeah. projects? I think as a white filmmaker, it's clear to me that like, as the um, film suggests in the environmental movement, you know, we need to follow the leadership of those most impacted. So looking at that lesson applied to my own practice, um, it's gonna look like, you know, working in multiracial collaborations where I'm not the one speaking for other people's um, trauma or I'm not the one making creative decisions and sort of asking myself, where are the like, power play moments where I can hand off decision-making power, but not labor onto people of color. And um, yeah, I think that there's a really 
exciting. I'm, I'm hesitant to call it exciting because it's really challenging and complex right. for everyone involved. But this reckoning that's happening in environmental spaces and in filmmaking spaces of moving away from extraction of people's traumatic stories and moving towards healing, hopefully. Right. I think that's certainly a theme a lot of us are looking at this year. Um, these, or at least just how we start navigating and rebuilding new systems and uh, as we move forward in 2021. Um, last question, Robin, then what are the top three things you want the audience to take away from this? You know, wild and scenic features films, sometimes around dire situations, but then also focuses on the solutions. So what are the top three things you would like all of us to take away or take action on? Yeah, feels like the dire situation and the solution are all melded up in, in the film. So I hope people take away um, the belief that multiracial collaboration is possible if done in a certain way. Um, and that way being about listening and being about um, knowing your own positionality and healing your own wounds so that you can show up to collaborations in a way that empowers like historically disenfranchised people and and that like people of color don't need to be included like they like it's not sort of like okay come into this space and assimilate it's more like how can we recognize that that's where the solutions are and and we as in like white um, environmentalists um, support what solutions are already being brewed there over years and years of resilience. So moving from inclusion to, to like a more holistic support. Right, certainly an important time for all of us to look even at our, our shadow side as well. You talked about healing. Um, Robin, right. thanks so much for joining us here on the Wild and Scenic Film Fest Media Lounge. We're operating virtually this time. Um, our next guest is uh, Julia Haslett, and the film is called Pushed Up the Mountain. Hi, Julia. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yes, yes. I did. Okay. Hey, yeah. welcome to Wild Scenic. Yeah. yeah. I asked Robin earlier if, if uh, she participated. Have you been part of Wild and Scenic before? I have not. I've heard great things about it, but I have not participated. No, I'm, I'm on the East Coast. I'm in North Carolina. I was so. going to ask where you're joining us from. Okay. And what has been your number one way right now to cope with everything going on, especially as a, a storyteller? Wow. Um, I mean, fortunately, I live in a slightly warmer part of the country. So in North Carolina, we don't get brutally cold temperatures. So I've been trying to spend as much time outside as I can with friends, with my dog, you know, just trying to like engage outside of the hermetically sealed home. Um, so you know, I'm at that stage right now where I'm, you know, the film is just launching into the world. So I'm not actually in production. I think that would be super hard. So in that way, it's um, not as bad a time, but at the same time, it's a hard time to be launching a film into the world. So, you know. For sure, for sure. And this film involved a little bit of travel, right? Uh, you talk about just going from, you know, Scotland with your your family ancestors and then making your way to China. And the film's actually around rhododendrons. So you could, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Well, so rhododendrons are about half of the genus of all of the species are native to the Eastern Himalayas, sort of Sino-Himalayas. And, um, but they were brought over by 
colonial plant hunters back in the 19th century. And that's how they ended up in, in the UK, which is where I first kind of encountered them. Um, and then what I do in the film is trace them back to where they, to China, um, where because of global warming and because they're alpine species, they are being impacted by, by climate change. Um, and in some, some of the species are threatened. So I kind of then spend some time following conservationists in that sort of Southwest part of China, Yunnan and Sichuan province, um, you know, kind of observing their conservation work. And why rhododendrons? What is it that piqued your interest around this? Oh, well, so that is, okay. So why rhododendrons? They, so my, my now deceased godfather had a garden of rhododendrons in Scotland. And so in, I was there for the weekend and a group of rhododendron enthusiasts were there and people get like super excited about, I mean, different plant genesis, but that one is the big, you know, colorful bush, I mean, flowers and anyway, they're just like super passionate. And I was very interested in their passion. And then as I started to dig, I started to understand its connection to these sort of global trade routes and, and then ultimately to globalization, you know, and where we are now. So yeah, so it, it's, I mean, I wouldn't want to say it's, it's, it's very much central to it, but the rhododendron is kind of like the way into a story about plants, like mm -hmm. more generally, right. because I kind of want people to care and feel more deeply about plants by the end of the movie. So. Right. Yeah. And you, that was already a passion and interest of yours, but what was like the biggest takeaway for you in, in doing this project in film? And one of the biggest surprises too. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, cause my, my, this is my first film that really engages with environmental subjects. So I, I think I developed a very profound appreciation for the work of nature conservation and just like how hard that work is and how really kind of unsexy it is, but like it's something that people are doing have to do year after year to actually document and demonstrate that these changes are occurring, right? And this this is a, a concern. And so I that was something, so sort I think I developed a real sense of these of nature conservation kind of as being heroes. And that was something that I didn't really, I mean, I just had a very, you know, superficial relationship to, to that beforehand. Um, so I would say that, um, and then there's a whole part of it related to China and, in, in, you know, and I'm an American and how, you know, I mean, most people during the, the time that I was making the film would say, when I said I'm making a film about nature conservation in China and they were like, nature conservation, China, like those two words didn't connect for them. Right. Right. But there's a lot of people doing a lot of really great work there who are sort of the unsung heroes. And so I was also interested in, you know, showcasing them, but also kind of trying to understand a little bit more about what is going on in China in particular. In these wild times, how will this experience in the film um, pushed up the mountain, do you think help shape the stories that you're going to tell now in the future or for an upcoming project? Well, I mean, I hope, well, just before I answer that, I hope that the film itself will just, you know, because I'm taking this very ordinary kind of garden plant and connecting it to this larger history, I hope that that's going to galvanize people to think a little bit more deeply about the plant world. And in terms right. of my next projects, um, 
I actually am starting to develop a film about eco-psychology and eco-therapy. And I've just become very interested in the role that nature can play for people to overcome all sorts of different kinds of trauma. So that it's definitely, you know, send me off in a, in a kind of a new direction, this project. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Julie. It's a pleasure to have you here and joining us on the virtual Wild and Scenic Film Fest Media Lounge. We're celebrating 19 years and I'm Elisa and you're going to be connecting with all kinds of extraordinary folks like we've talked with Julianne Robin, and you'll be seeing others joining us up until five o'clock this evening, including David. And we'll see if we're going to, and there he is. He's activating Hi. his camera, everybody. Hey, David, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm, I'm doing as well as I can. I often say just staying, uh, gr hopefully grounded in my sense of self and the chaos, you know? Uh, like yes, really uh, I, I hear that. And I'm experiencing that as we speak. You are? Because, uh, uh, on many fronts, but in addition to being a filmmaker, I'm a journalist uh, here in Boston, uh, where I'm the environment reporter for the Boston Globe. I saw and, that. And um, about five minutes before uh, this this conversation, I just learned that our Republican governor, who is perhaps the most liberal-minded governor in our state, just uh, vetoed what is probably the most far-reaching climate change bill uh, um, that uh, that had passed any state in the country. So uh, so I'm on under the gun a little bit because I have to actually file a story for the paper uh, shortly. Um, so um, anyway. Wow. Well, <laughs> Throw that into that's the just how it is. Of, of everything. Expect the unexpected. I mean, I think we're all kind of used to that right now. Right. The film is called Entangled. And so you've been featuring stories, uh, reporting on stories around uh, environment and also fisheries. So tell us, tell us about um, your experience with Entangled and what was it in the first place, David, that directed your focus to this specific story? Sure. Uh, so um, as you mentioned, this is uh, sort of the third um, in a trilogy of films that I've made about how climate change is affecting our oceans, particularly our oceans here uh, in the waters off New England. Um, uh, this body of water known as the Gulf of Maine, which is warming for a variety of reasons, faster than almost any other body of water on the planet. And uh, as uh, I'm sure a lot of folks know, our oceans are absorbing the vast majority of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so we're seeing the impacts of climate change uh, in our waters uh, more quickly than we're seeing it anywhere else. Although of course you guys uh, uh, are experiencing it uh, in your forests, uh, which you unfortunately experienced in the very thick much of this it. year. In the thick of it, David, yeah. I know, yeah. I know. And my heart goes out to you guys. Um, but uh, in short, uh, the first film I made was how uh, in this trilogy was about how the warming waters in the Gulf of Maine have caused this iconic species here that was fished uh, um, for 400 years uh, by the pilgrims and, and the early settlers and what brought uh, Europeans to, uh, to North America was the, the cod. Uh, that, and that film was called Sacred Cod, which was actually featured at Wild and Scenic uh, a few years ago. And uh, that film was about how, despite overfishing, that fishery bounced back repeatedly uh, but then warming uh, really uh, put uh, saw the species decline 
by 90%. And uh, then I made a film called Lobster War uh, after that, which was about how uh, the warming waters uh, had the opposite impact and caused a surge in the lobster catch, another iconic species here in New England, uh, right. um, in the waters off of between Maine and Canada. And as a result of that warming, uh, there was this long dormant conflict that dated back to the Revolutionary War between the United States and Canada over this tiny island that nobody cared about. But all of a sudden, the waters around that island had become flush with um, very valuable lobsters. And so the Canadians who long ceded those waters to the Americans suddenly decided that they were going to fish those waters too. And it ignited this whole conflict. And while I was making that film, I came to learn a lot about uh, the conflict between um, these um, lines that lobstermen here use that stretch from the surface of the ocean to the seafloor. They're called vertical buoy lines. And unfortunately, there, there are millions of these lines in the water column um, uh, throughout the course of a year. And those lines are the primary reason um, for the decline in the precipitous decline in the population of North Atlantic right whales, which are now among the most endangered species on the planet. There are only about 350 left of them. And so the film- I wasn't really familiar with the, the North Atlantic right whale. Yeah, um, well, to make a long story short, yes, this species is one of a, um, uh, a number of, of whales that are endangered, but this is uh, perhaps the most critically endangered of, uh, of whales. And um, it its population uh, uh, has been in flux. It, it was thought to be extinct uh, after centuries of whaling. And then um, its numbers actually, it, they were discovered there was a sizable, relatively sizable population that was found about 30 years ago. And then through various regulations, the population has actually uh, increased. Um, uh, but uh, to make a long story short, um, uh, the, the right whales were considered a success story until about 10 years ago when suddenly their population started to decline and um, and that decline was mainly attributed to these lobster lines. And so this is a film that looks at, at the struggle uh, and the efforts by the federal government to try to balance these competing interests between uh, what is the nation's most valuable fishery, which is the lobster industry, uh, which earns um, fishermen throughout New England more than uh, half a billion dollars a year. Wow. Um, and uh, and the one of the world's most endangered species, and so uh, that is that is this tremendous conflict. Thank you so much, David. David, the film's entangled. He's a Pulitzer Prize award-winning journalist, reporter, and filmmaker. And it was great to have you. Thanks, David, and good luck. Okay, thank you very Let's much. Do I appreciate the story. It. Yeah, Sorry great to have you here. No, no worries. We're, we're, okay. it's all about, we're moving along anyway. Um, I'm Elisa Parker. We are broadcasting here from around the world from the comfort of our, most of us, our own homes here for 19 years. Wildland Scenic has been uh, sharing the stories that can have the most influence powers in regards to shaping our world. And our next guest, guest, I have Christopher Smith. The film is called Currency. Hey, Christopher, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. 
So, and where are you joining us from? Uh, I am based in Los Angeles now. So okay. Eagle Rock, for those of you who know anything about Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, and, and how have you been? Well, I don't even know if the question's how are you holding up? What are you doing that's being that's helping you be most effective in these current times right now, Christopher, especially as it relates to being a filmmaker? Great question. Um, honestly, I'm just trying to, I think like a lot of people, you know, make ends meet during the pandemic. Um, obviously, filming has been shut down to a great extent, but I've actually done a number of videos for the city of Los Angeles and the, or the county of Los Angeles and the state of California about their pandemic response, particularly among the homeless population. So okay. that's kind of kept me uh, busy during the fall. So we were just talking with David around fishing, illegally, illegal fishing. Um, he was talking about the right whale, but your story took you to Southeast Asia. Can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about your found? Yeah, definitely. So Currency is an environmental thriller that primarily follows an investigative journalist, Matt Blomberg, and an ocean activist, Paul Ferber, and the organization that he set up to stop the tide of illegal fishing that's been coming in from Vietnam and uh, basically to try to rejuvenate this uh, area of the, the ocean there called the Kep Archipelago. So it, it's really an environmental thriller. It's, it's, it's kind of uh, meant to be a bit of an edge of your seat um, experience, I guess. Right. And what is it that inspired you to do this in the first place? Well, Especially uh, if you're from Los Angeles. Right. Well, so I actually lived in Boulder, Colorado for most of okay. my adult life. Um, and I made a film um, a number of years ago with a co-director called Tiny, A Story About Living Small, which is another environmental film, which actually was that wild and scenic in rough cut form, uh, which by the way, love the festival. I wish I could be there in person, wish we could all be there in person. I know. Um, and yeah, so I, I was working on another project and really wanted to um, do a short film actually. And I was trolling around on the internet and came across a story about Paul and the sort of vigilante kind of uh, things that he was doing in Cambodia. And at the time I was sort of um, inspired by a film called Cartel Land, which, you know, for those who have seen it is very um, kind of, thriller-esque and, and following this like, violence happening with the cartels. And I was wondering what that kind of storytelling could look like in an environmental context. And when I came across this story about Paul, I was like, oh, this could be the kind of thing, you know, because I really wanted to engage the audience and sort of, um, you know, I, I worked um, with Luis Sohoya, who did the Cove in Racing Extinction on his editorial team for Racing Extinction. And he always said that he, he wanted to make an, like, an action film like the Avengers, but for the environment. And so I think those two things I kind of like brought together and, and really thought that maybe if we could tell environmental stories in less of like an essay style and a little bit more of a, you know, following the, the story of these people who are putting themselves at harm's, in harm's way in these um, oftentimes developing countries that it could really engage audiences, but also show people potential solutions and um, encourage people to do uh, whatever they could in the places that they live. So that's kind of, those things combined at the right time. And I went out there and when I was there, I realized that there was more than just a short film. It was actually a feature film. Well, and it's interesting too, because if you're like typically creating a fictional story, then you have, you know how it's going to end, but that's even the suspense aspect from the filmmaker's perspective, right? Is that you are, that you don't know necessarily how it's going to end and it's still in the process. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's always a bit of a leap of a faith. I think when you start a film like this or documentary films in general, 
um, because oftentimes you're not exactly sure what the ending is. And that actually also right. makes it really hard to raise uh, funding for the filming portion because all the fun, you know, investors or funders want to know what the ending is. And you're like, I don't know, we're, right. we're, we're finding out our, our, you know, you kind of have to have a sense about it, I think. And, and something just told me that there's natural drama here and there was a tie in with um, social issues. When you look at, you know, a lot of the subsistence fishermen who live off of this patch of ocean and how there was just natural conflict between them and these more industrialized, larger fishing boats coming in from Vietnam. I just felt like um, there was a story here and, and it really needed to be told. What is, uh, what's one of the wildest things that's happened for you, Christopher, in the making of this story? Uh, well, there, there was a number of things, but you know, one of the things that didn't make it into the film, we were actually kind of, I was with Paul and we were chasing this um, illegal Vietnamese uh, airboat, which is a, a type of fishing, super illegal there, as well as most places in the world where they um, will breathe out of a tube and walk along the coral reefs and just kind of pick up whatever thing that they can sell or eat or, what, or whatever. And the reason it's so um, illegal is because it, it basically, you know, it's just too easy to wipe out whole populations of, of fish and, and other kinds of sea life. So um, we were chasing this boat um, and it was heading back into to Vietnam and its engine died. And when we kind of caught up to them, uh, along the way, they were pointing harpoon guns at us and throwing diving weights and, and things like that. And, you know, I'm just there to capture it, but we're on really small boats. And I was on MCC's speedboat and they were on like kind of a small wooden boat. And kind of like, as we caught up with them, some of the, the locals that work with Paul, you know, because they had probably, um, you know, been threatened, you know, it just conflict sort of like, uh, grew and ended up turning into this, you know, kind of knife fight, all out brawl type of thing on these, the bow of these really small wooden boats. And I'm maybe four or five feet from it filming it. Uh, so that was probably the most danger I was in. Um, and, and, you know, it's unfortunate. It, it just didn't have a place in terms of the story of the film um, because it was probably the most dramatic footage that I got as well. So. Wow. That's intense. That's yeah. an intense story, Christopher. Well, um, well, and I just want to say that these people uh, that I was filming, but people all over the, the world put themselves in that kind of risk on a daily basis to sure. protect the environment. And, and sure. you know, I wanted to kind of honor them uh, with this film. So. Right. Well, Christopher, um, we look forward to hearing more of your future stories, projects you have coming up. The film's called Current Sea. And thanks so much for joining us and being part of the festival, Christopher. It's thank you so much for having us. me and having my film. So thank you so much. We have, uh, I believe Scott is coming up next. And I see Scott right there. So hang on one sec. Your film's called The Nature Makers. It is. So uh, Scott, can you tell us about your film? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so we, we set out to make a film that showed um, human impacts on natural systems. And you know the usual approach is to show human impacts on natural systems, but there've been so many great films that have done exactly that, that we decided we wanted to try something different. And what we, we wanted to do was show uh, basically what it takes now to undo those impacts. So we looked for people who are doing sort of extreme conservation activities to try to uh, combat uh, sort of uh, environmental degradation. So for instance, on the Platte River in Nebraska, uh, the, the, the river is so degraded uh, from its natural state that it's having a terrible impact on migratory species, um, especially migratory cranes. So there are um, conservationists and wildlife biologists who now go
go out into the river with heavy equipment and imitate the forces of nature. They basically do with machines what nature used to do. And we also filmed with a team in the Grand Canyon and basically the Colorado River and its tributaries have been so impacted that uh, an important native fish can no longer access uh, parts of its native terrain. So the biologists use helicopters to basically imitate what, you know, the access to these remote regions of the park that uh, the fish used to have access to. So, th you know, this isn't a way of saying that, oh, we're, we're okay because we have machines and machines can replace nature. It's quite the opposite. It's, it's right. that this is what it's come to. It's, it's come to the point where uh, it's a kind of all hands on deck situation and it's taking a tremendous amount of resourceful conservation to keep a lot of species alive. And it was just a way, it was, it, it was a way into telling the story of, you know, really interesting conservationists and the species they're trying to protect. How did you, how did you end up identifying these more extreme wildlife conservationists? For spent the a lot of time on the internet looking for the story. I bet you did. I bet yeah. you did. Yeah. So, you know, and, and so for instance, the, it kind of started because I was reading a, an interesting book called Rambunctious Garden by Emma Morris, who probably a lot of you are familiar with. And she had just a little phrase where she mentioned people using bulldozers in the Platte River to uh, basically try to help the Platte function as it once did. And I thought, ah, there's a story. So from that tiny little thread, the whole movie began to evolve. So, um, you know, that, that was, and then it, 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 it took quite a bit of time, but um, there are a lot of those stories out there. So we're, we're actually now in the early phases of, of, of developing a TV show um, that, you know, that looks at many other stories along these lines, because there are a lot of them. And creating this film, Scott, how has it changed your life on a, on a personal level? Uh, that's it. No, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm, I'm like a city guy. I grew up in, in Los mm -hmm. Angeles and lived most of my adult life in New York City. So, you know, what did I know from nature? You know, nature was pigeons and squirrels, right? So right. being able to spend a lot of time outside with some amazing species and the people who are working to protect them really completely changed the way I, you know, I think about the world and you know, I mean, everybody is aware of the threat of climate change now, but um, to, to actually be out in the world and just see the full extent of, of our, our human impact uh, on the natural world was just kind of um, terrifying. But at the same time, to just to, to be able to spend time with the people who are now devoting their lives to try to keep species from disappearing was, was pretty inspirational and which is a good thing because when you make a film, it as all of you guys know, it takes a long time. And if you make a, a, a super depressing story, it tends to be super depressing in your life. So um, this, this was an opportunity for me to kind of, you know, get a little bit of a, you know, a jolt of optimism, just watching the work that people, really dedicated people were doing. The only harder working people than independent filmmakers I found are conservationists. So that was pretty cool. I, it felt like, you know, 
a, a member of an extended tribe in a way. How has, my last question is to Scott, by the way, the film's called The Nature Makers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was mentioning earlier, one of my awarenesses in just the last 10 or 11 months as I've been closer to home and I'm in Northern California, surrounded by trees mm -hmm. is being more aware of the wildlife that is surrounding us. Right. And just anywhere from like termites in the, you know, dead, yeah. you know, in trees on it, right? I, I, mm -hmm. Has that shifted yeah, for you, you at all? You don't think you, of insects as wildlife, but it really is, you know, but, so. What has been one of, what has been like an aha for you or some, or a wildlife or an insect or something that you've discovered in the last 11 months that maybe you didn't know much about before? So, so I, I think the most profound thing for me was just what was how remarkably intelligent, um, you know, non-human species are. Um, I, I, I had no idea. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time with prairie dogs and I got uh, to spend time with um, a scientist who has sort of devoted his career to um, decoding uh, prairie dog language. And, you know, he, he has made a compelling argument that it's actually a language. And, um, you know, it's always been assumed that animals signal to each other but he, he has made a very, very compelling case that animals have an actual language. And to just to, to spend time and to see their behavior, um, you, it, 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 it's so obvious that uh, they have such rich emotional and, and even, you know, I, you know, I guess I would say intellectual lives. And that, that has really been the most profound thing that I learned during the making of the film. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for, thanks for joining us, Scott. It's a pleasure here to have you with us at Wild and Scenic. Yeah, and thanks so much for really taking the time. Really happy to be part of the festival. Right, and, now, and the festival is unique this year because we're broadcasting uh, virtually for an entire week. Normally we're hanging out here in Nevada City uh, where everyone convenes. This time we get to convene worldwide and in, we're celebrating 19 years. So um, it's an honor when we can connect with folks like Scott here. And we're doing it from the comfort of our most likely our own home. So anyway, thanks for being with us, Scott. You know, one of the things here in our community is that seems like we're constantly facing is the reopening of mines or the building of dams. And with me here, I have Menken Nelson to talk about the film Rise Beyond Gold, which is really looking at the reopening of the Idaho, Maryland mine. Hi, Menken. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. My pleasure. I know we're just going, we're just going with the flow and figuring this out Perfect. and doing the best to get everyone featured in here. So Rise Beyond Gold, I know you've also been doing this film with Jennifer as well. Yeah, Jennifer Ekstrom's the director, director, but she couldn't make it today and um, a pleasure to work with. But yeah, we did a little 13 minute micro documentary called Rise Beyond Gold. Okay, so uh, I know it's a heated topic here in our community. What inspired you guys that to you to take this on? You know, and tell, and tell of, the story. No problem. Yeah, it kind of starts with what Luis was saying about get outdoors and get happy. And uh, our whole production team is very outdoor savvy. And so we kind of have this thing being proposed where we live that sounded so crazy. You know, when Jen first came to me, to say they were reopening a mine, I, I was kind of baffled, you know, and then looking at how- Right, you think people, there's that's still happening? That well, it and it's like in over. Grass Valley, in the city of mm -hmm. Grass Valley, it's just a wild proposition. And so the deeper we dug, the more crazy stuff about the proposition we found out. And it just kind of 
snowballed and it was really encouraged. Um, like we were encouraged by the community to do it and we really did it in three weeks. It was kind of this crazy, like, can we make the Wild and Scenic Film Festival deadline to help get this message out to the community? And so we, right. we decided to do it and then just jumped on a three week crazy bandwagon. So as far as, you know, and, and this has been halted before and telling the story around this, what's one thing that you learned that surprised you? And then second, do you feel hopeful that we can stop the opening of this? Yeah, that's what I wanted to jump in and say is it's not definitely reopening. And that is the actual point of our film is to let people know what, what's out there or what they're proposing so that people can get activated. You can still reach out to your board of supervisors. Um, there's a Facebook group called Mindwatch that's got great information. Um, on the 23rd at four to five through the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, there's a workshop centered around this to kind of oppose uh, reopening this mine. So, so I'm very hopeful, you know, the more you learn about it, the more obscene it seems, you know, they're, they're talking about some 300 jobs, but they're ruining more than that in private wells. You know, we're, we actually went for the film uh, into the creek, the local creek here and pulled mercury out of the creek to kind of show. Is that in Deer, the, Deer Creek that you did that? Yeah, in Deer Creek. Wow. And in a wow. very short amount of time, we got like a, like, you know, that much mercury. Um, which is deadly, you know, as we all know. And so they're talking about like rewatering these mines or draining the water out into the creek. And um, it's just, you know, it's wild that it's even, even being considered you know, for a few investors to make money. And part of this one in particular is Rise Gold has done the same thing before. And what they kind of do is get a ton of investors and they start the mining process. And then they jump ship and they just leave the community to clean up all the environmental damage. And um, so there's a pattern there. They're actually in court in Canada over this very thing right now. And we're just hoping that our community voices their personal opinion and says, hey, this is crazy. We don't, we don't want to deal with that. Uh, and then right. we get into a bigger picture as we're looking at this, you know, because there's the whole, nobody wants something horrific in their own backyard. Right. But we all love nature and we're all looking at our gold consumption. You know, gold is this great, beautiful thing that gets people really excited. But the majority of it just sits in banks in storage. And so we're going around and destroying our environment for, you know, people to eat gold as a, as a sign of wealth. You know, it's kind of a wild um, industry to even be considering supporting at this stage. Had you considered yourself an environmental activist before taking on this film? And, and how has this shifted the way that you're going to get involved, and especially around this and the reopening here in our community of the mine? Well, gosh, you know, that's a tough question to answer. Um, as, as Scott was saying earlier, the, the real activists are, are giving their lives for this. And, and in that regard, I've been fairly lazy across the board. I've definitely been involved in some activist projects for years running. Um, and on this one, I want to stay pretty vocal and getting the word out as much as possible. You are part of our community. So obviously, Wild and Scenic is, you know, near and dear. Um, why is it so important for folks to participate in a festival like this and participate over this week? 
and viewing these films, uh, participating in the workshops and some of, you know, hearing some of the panels. Oh, goodness. Well, it's such a great, you know, I actually came to Nevada City on the weekend that Wild and Scenic Film Festival was happening years ago. And it's part of what made me fall in love with this community is it's such a great uh, collection of films and activation and viewpoints. And although the films come from all over the globe, I mean, they're, they're really well picked, you know, and I feel like any block that you choose, you're going to truly enjoy yourself. You're probably going to learn a lot. You'll probably get motivated. Um, you'll definitely get inspired. So I don't know why anyone would not want to tune in to support it, honestly. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Menken. I really appreciate it. And again, the film is called Rise Beyond Gold. I'm Elisa Parker. We're hosting for the first time the Wild and Scenic Film Fest Media Lounge reception uh, virtually. Um, instead of in our hub of Nevada City, we're celebrating 19 years and we're going to be hanging out with you until five o'clock and doing my best to get uh, making sure we hear everyone's stories who's joined us today. And do we have Anne with us? Is Anne joining us with her book? Yes, I am. Around. Yeah. Hey, Anne. Hey there, Elisa. Good to you. see hey, you. Hey, Anne. Hi. Good to hey see there. you too. So your, so your book is about abalone. Yes. Look, here it is. I'm showing is you a picture. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And it's been prevalent here in the California coast for years. Yeah, everybody, I think most people in California know what abalone is, but if you're not from the region, they're kind of like a lobster in Maine or salmon in the Pacific Northwest. And they were incredibly abundant on the California coast for a time of our history. And so uh, they were incredibly uh, important to culture and community in, in a very significant way. But unfortunately, in recent times, they've uh, become far more imperiled. And that's the story I tell in my book. And that's the story I'm going to be talking about on Saturday morning at a slideshow that I'm going to be uh, giving as a special event for the part of the film festival. And can you tell us a little bit, Anne, about the, you know, in thinking about uh, the relevance with history, uh, one of the things I, you know, in learning more about your book, just, you know, going back 13,000 years when we talk about shellfish, right, and the, the, uh, and how it's been interconnected in our, our lives here, especially in California. Um, tell us a little bit about that and just the context of how important it is to know the historic value of something as we move forward. Yeah, well, I'm an environmental historian. And so I think history is always really important as we approach environmental issues. So often I feel like we think about environmental issues like in the modern context is having a pie and cutting it up and each person gets a little piece and somehow right. cutting the pie is sort of the solution. Uh, but if you go back and look through time, you realize that um, the time frames, you know, uh, are, that it's a very different thing. Like we've already been cutting the pie many, many times, many, many ways. In the case of California's abalone, it's actually a little bit different and, and very interesting um, because we have um, a situation where uh, we have had abalone actually for 70 million years on the California coast. And then when people showed up about 13,000 years ago, we had people using them for subsistence, for eating, but also using their shells. One of the things that's really cool about abalone shells, I'll show it to people in the lounge, is they have this gorgeous iridescent uh, material. And so people use them to make ornaments and tools and use them in ceremonial purposes, indigenous Californians. So um, there's this incredibly rich, uh, meaningful relationship people had with uh, with abalone kind of in that 
period before colonization and the brutal disruption that happened. And then we have uh, newcomers who came who also developed different kinds of relationships with abalone, some who regarded them as commodities that could be uh, you know, sold. And in fact, the first some of the first Trans-Pacific trade um, was in shipping abalone meat across the Pacific to Asia, um, but also cultures of, of sport fishing and hunting and the cultures that uh, really valued these animals as souvenirs and for their natural beauty. And uh, much more recently uh, with the advent of scuba diving and snorkeling and all that. I was science... gonna ask you if you've, have you done any abalone diving yourself? I... Yes, I got to, in the course of this book, I got to go and do some snorkeling with some friends who were diving for abalone in Northern California, and that was in 2013, and we um, we got them and brought them back and got to uh, have the traditional abalone barbecue, but our, you know, meal in the campground, it was totally fun and amazing. It's an, it was an extraordinary local food. But as many people in Northern California know, since that time, in just the past five years, we've had a huge collapse of kelp forests in Northern California that led to the starvation of thousands of abalone and a real collapse of a sport fishery that we've had um, for a long time. And so that happened as I was uh, writing my book and um, really underscored to me one of the things that I learned that was so important, uh, the role of these creatures as sentinel species, really showing us that the climate collapse is here and these animals that we've had such a close relationship with um, are vulnerable. And so many marine invertebrates are vulnerable to these changes that are happening in the ocean. And so um, one of the things I wrote about in my book, I mean, sometimes people think history is just the past. I brought it right up to the present. I wanted to know who are the scientists that are working on this and what are they doing? How are we trying to save these animals and how are we trying to recover them? And so um, it's really a history that I tell, as I said, starts 70 million years ago, but comes right up to the present and um, helps us to put context to the challenges we're facing today. I also think of history as kind of like, it's like the stepping point off for the future, you know? So we kind of all have right. to know the story so that we can be making the decisions about where we need to go. If everybody, if people don't agree on the story or, you know, as we see now. Uh, and so telling stories, sharing stories, that's one of the really important ways um, that we get to the point where we can make positive action for the future. Yeah, so I'm really psyched to be able to be part of the film festival. I often come to it with my husband. We love Nevada City. We love coming. And so I'm really psyched to be able to be here uh, virtually this year and hope to see a lot of people at that uh, free talk on Saturday morning. That's what time is it on Saturday morning? It's 10 o'clock on Saturday morning and we'll be talking, talking abalone history and I've got a lot of great uh, historic images that, uh, so if you haven't read the book yet, uh, you'll, get a, you'll get a sense of what the story is, but if you have read it, you can see some great images that I don't get to share in the book. So anyway. Great, thanks so much, Anne. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to so have you here virtually. I'm Elisa Parker, we're broadcasting uh, both on KVMR and also via uh, the wild and scenic uh, Film Fest platform. We're celebrating 19 years and been inspiring a lot of action in those 19 years. And I'm excited to introduce our next guest. We have Danny Schmidt. Danny is uh, the filmmaker with The Wild Divide. Tell us about your film and, and how that involves the state on the other side. And by the way, where are you, where are you joining us from right now? I live in Salt Lake City. Okay. And, and I otherwise would have no connection to Florida. Uh, it is the weird state down there in the corner. It and, is a little weird. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah, when, no. 
and for some for some reason my career takes me there a lot and i i now have this sort of weird affinity for it and in part because every time i go to florida i get off the airplane and i go straight to the swamp or straight to a a big ranch with high biodiversity values and so my picture of florida is more than um just a a weird swing state with disneyland and uh, suburbs and strip malls yeah. which has all of those things too um so right. you're getting to see part of it and you're going to be telling and you're sharing this on parts of Florida we don't get to see exactly and I, often, think, you know? I, I think in in people need to know that wilderness exists for and, and care about those places for for them to have value politically and economically and spiritually and so um, I've had the pleasure of making a, several films in Florida, um, and this is another one in conjunction with the Florida Wildlife Corridor, which is a, a group um, that's organized to do exactly what it sounds like, is to, to protect enough green space so that wildlife and people can um, have enough room to roam north to south across the state. And a lot of southern Florida is already protected by national parks and reserves, but uh, the whole the whole center swath of the state is really a mosaic of ranches and swamps and marshland um, that that may be harder to develop. But there's a thousand people a day that move to Florida every day. Wow! Wow! And, and so how does it? How, yeah, yeah, sir. Yeah. Go so ahead. the population pressure is really great, and the biodiversity value is also really high. And so every year. Uh, we trek a certain section of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And sometimes that trek takes us through um, agricultural lands. And this this particular trek that we did in the Wild Divide did that. And it um, in, in Florida, these ag lands are super important. Like a cattle ranch might be the last stronghold for a Florida panther. Uh, so uh, the film hoped to explore sort of the connection between uh, ag lands in Florida and their importance for wildlife. What's one of the wildest things that happened to you? Because there's what horseback riding. I haven't watched the film yet, so I'm looking forward to doing that. But and and I I think I read paddleboarding. Did you paddleboard in the yeah, swamp? So, or what's that about? Yeah. So uh, Florida is underwater a lot of the year, different parts of it mm -hmm. at, at different times, and so you kind of need to have lots of different modes of transportation at your disposal. Um, right. One of the reasons there's still wild areas in Florida is because it's not easy to move through that area and it's um, it's full of mosquitoes and lots of venomous snakes and lots of poison ivy and so uh, traipsing through these wilderness areas is is not for the faint of heart but um, yeah I mean it, it, as with any film production you're just sort of wearing a lot of hats and, and putting out fires as you go in the service of telling the story and so we had we had horses that that would buck members of the crew we had horses that refused to walk we burned out the engine on one of our little atvs that we were using to film we had i came home with poison ivy all over my eyes i mean it was just sort of the nature that's of, terrible <laughs> uh, yeah i mean those that's does, but... we, we call that type two fun where when you get home and reflect yeah. on it you think that was actually a good time <laughs> that was a good time but Once at the, the, but at the time yeah, you know, yeah. yeah well and you have to be so when you're paddle boarding or really or in any kind of wildlife situation you have to be super present 
right? Right. So in some ways, maybe has that helped prepare you more for the pandemic that we've been living through and just being living and and being very present in wild chaos, unpredictable situations? Well, I would say that if if anything, filmmaking uh, makes you a perhaps more resilient person, especially documentary filmmaking. Um, Right. You have to sort of go with the punches. I'm I'm. The pandemic is exhausting and I can't wait to yeah. get on an airplane and go walk through a swamp again and feel, right. feel something normal again. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I enjoy that, that experience and that sort of experiential filmmaking is, is I think in part why a lot of people end up pursuing this career. Um, and when you get to do it in the service of saving a wild place, that's even better. Right. Well, Danny, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today on the Wild and Scenic Media Lounge Reception. Yeah. And uh, look forward to seeing the film The Wild Divide. Best wishes in Salt Lake City there where he's hanging out. Or you said Salt Lake City in Utah. We have folks joining us from all over the world, which makes it kind of fun to do this. Just going with grace and ease. I see Jose Gonzalez and I got to meet Jose last year, I believe. Hey, Jose. Uh, we, I think we connected last year. You were at Wild and Scenic. Is that right? That is true. I was there. Well, welcome. It's great to have you back. And you are actually going to be a part of a, a panel or moderate a panel. By the way, you are the founder of Latino Outdoors. And um, we're just thrilled to have you back here. And, and how have you been? How have you been in coping with all of this in the last, um, I don't know, 11 months? I Forever. think like many, like many people express here, right? Uh, we're all a little bummed out that we can't all physically be up there um, to experience the, the film festival in the way that we have before. Um, although I will add that even just listening to all the conversations, like, yeah, these are all great topics of discussion. <laughs> it it, it kind of right. gets me excited. Right. It, it does its job. I, it gets me excited it, about the films. Right? No, and it's unique because typically when we've done the media lounge or the reception, not no one can hear everyone's stories um, and around their films. So it's it's unique that we get to do this in this platform and, and hosting people from all over the world tonight. Um, and I know we're going to run just a little over, but we want to make sure we get everyone's stories in, including yours, Jose. So, um, so we'll first tell us about the, is it a workshop that you're going to be leading or a panel? Yes, um, it, it's it's more of a panel. It's a panel workshop. Okay. Um, and for anyone that, of course, still hasn't seen the film, you know, kind of here we stand about um, this redwood, the redwood property in terms of that, that Save the Redwoods uh, League has been working on terms of purchasing and making, uh, ultimately looking at the way to make it um, community and publicly accessible. Um, that's part of what this is grounded in, in terms of con- continuing that community work. And I'm pushing it a little bit more in terms of this conversation to um, uh, support this connective tissue between kind of the language of ecology and how often, uh, you know, a lot of the films of the Wild and Scenic Film Festivals, they really get us excited, right? They get us stoked, they get us connected to 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 what we see as, as the wild in, in, in all of its different facets. And we are still within the context um, of the society we live in, which uh, we have to account for like a lot of the racial injustice and, 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 uh, and social movement and equity conversation that really, you know, just continue to come up to light. So I'm um, inviting uh, their peers and colleagues who are naturalists, who are conservationists, who are practitioners in this work um, to talk about like how, 
uh, a lot of the language of ecology that we might be familiar with can be supportive and instructive in how we can talk about equity and inclusion and navigating some of the hard conversations around anti-racism and then just building uh, better, more inclusive, supportive uh, systems. So we'll be able to talk about the role of fire and conflict management. We'll be able to talk about the mycelial network that a lot of people are much more known and stoked about I, right now. Right? right, that's a hot, that's a hot one right yeah. now for sure. Mm -hmm. Totally. Right, well, like language, as you mentioned, Jose, language has so much influence and power in how we shape mm -hmm. our world right now. So what is that looking like for you right now, given our times as we are in, like, as you said, things are being called out, called forth, hard conversations that we're having right now. Um, what, what is that looking like for you on a personal level and the projects that you're working on, mm -hmm. given everything that's been going on and, and how to shape that, right? Because now yeah. we're, re, we're really imagining and rebuilding systems that had not served many of us. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And so I'll give two examples in terms of what does this look like in both the individual practice, but really with the systemic elements. So a lot of the terms we talk about, like, oh, systemic oppression, historical uh, oppression in those ways, you know, they're, they're really, I, I make those transfers to say like that landscape, it's kind of like when we go outdoors and saying, well, what, what does the map tell us? We've, we've chosen what is on this map to help us navigate this landscape uh, and, and how we have to account for how we move through it and whatnot. And so two examples right now would be like, so let's look at the way that nature treats, how nature treats boundaries, right? What is, how does it engage with difference? And many boundaries in nature, the, that edge effect, that ecotone is a zone of abundance. So where mm. you get one habitat and another habitat meets, that's actually where a lot of exciting stuff happens. And so if you say, well, as humans, we, we can be pretty bad about that. We, you know, like the border wall is a good example of how we do the opposite. We create these very delineated, bifurcated, like, uh, militarized spaces that are not supportive of human or natural <laughs> connectivity, right. but, but nature does the opposite. And so Yo-Yo Ma, right, the celloist, he loves talking about the edge effect because he talks about, this is why I engage with musicians of a different practice. This is why like I push these boundaries because then he gets to be more creative. So it's a, an invitation to engage with difference in, a, in an exciting way rather than one of fear rather than one of separation. Um, and that's what very quickly the second order on fire you know, we've learned, we've been learning so much about fire that's very different than how it was before when it was just put it out. We had these very suppressive tactics that have uh, shown us that they can create more destructive, intense fires. And we're dealing with that. Um, and so right. looking at prescriptive um, approaches and a lot of indigenous traditional knowledge about fire management shows us that there can be a lot of good of fire if you work with it. So I, we treat that in the same way about, about conflict and be able to say, if you suppress it, if you oppress it, if you don't engage with it, when it blows up, we're gonna have these moments like a wildfire roaring through a forest and that's gonna leave the landscape in a may leave the landscape in a worse situation than if we knew how to engage with the creative and destructive uh, elements of fire of, of social tension. Right. Well said. Well said, Jose. It's very true. A lot of things are blowing up right now. So we're figuring out the best ways to both navigate that and how do we operate uh, in a more interconnected process is, is it seems like you're talking about too. And Jose, when is the panel discussion happening? Week. Great question. That's coming up this Saturday. So this at uh, this Saturday, the 16th at 1 p.m. Yeah. Pacific. 
Okay, great. It's so great to see you, Jose. And um, we're thrilled and, and honored that you're part of Wild Scenic again this year. And thank you so much for hanging in here with us for the reception tonight and for sharing your story and everything you're doing to make a difference. I appreciate it all. Thank you so much. And may everyone have a good evening. I'm Elisa Parker, and it's all an experiment. We're reimagining possibilities. And as Wild Scenic does, we're inspiring activism. And we're inspiring uh, so many folks around the world, as we're going to be broadcasting this whole week, featuring the films, uh, inspiring ways that we can all do our part and make a difference. And uh, it's going to be a really powerful, amazing week. And we're just honored and grateful that you've been part of this with us. And uh, I've been honored to be part of this festival as well. I hope you have an amazing festival experience and have a really fantastic night.